0: Entrepreneurs, is your business protected? Today, we're sitting down with Jordan Denning, a corporate attorney who talks to us about risk mitigation, asset protection, things like IP, trademarks, copyright protections. And we go through a lot of conversations about what entrepreneurs need to make sure they have in place in their business when they start up, but also later in their years, I can do a checklist on their business to make sure they're fully protected. Rich, what did you get out of today's conversation?
1: One of the things I challenged Jordan and said, hey, why should we listen to you? Oh my gosh, how brilliant was it to listen to him because he's an entrepreneur himself. And that's the angle that he takes in this conversation and with his clients is first, in being an entrepreneur and understanding the journey and then looking at risk mitigation and asset protection related to businesses.
0: Yeah, in addition to that, we also talk about when you go into business with a partner, what you really should be thinking about. A lot of us go into business with family members, friends or other partners, what are some of the things you be thinking about specifically on the documentation piece? Here's Jordan Denning. Today's episode is being brought to you by Financial Wing. Are your company's financials keeping you up at night? We all know that today's small to medium-sized businesses often overlook the fundamentals of accounting and financial operations. Our friends at Financial Wing can help with everything from bookkeeping, monthly closing and reporting, budget planning, and much, much more. Financial Wing's reliable and professional approach will quickly build your trust and turn your finances into an asset versus a liability. Go to financialwing.com slash EU for your free 30-minute consultation and see what they can do for you. Jordan, welcome to the Entrepreneurs United podcast. Thank you for having me,
2: John, Rich. Happy to be here.
0: Absolutely. I understand you have a lot of background in law. You're a senior corporate attorney with Lloyd and Musili, I believe it's pronounced. Right. And we have attorneys come on from time to talk to our entrepreneurs about all the pitfalls that can exist in business when you don't have proper consultation. And I want to start this episode off with a little bit of a bang. If you don't mind, just want to hear a wild story, almost to gap our audience a little bit on the fear of don't just go alone. you got to have good consultation here with attorneys to set up your business, IP, things like that. What is the biggest entrepreneurial horror story you have ever experienced or heard about that an entrepreneur should listen to for just a fraction of a second, 30 seconds, a minute or so, and be like, okay, I'm engaged. I need to listen to this. Guy.
2: I can give you, uh, I have a number of horror stories. And I, like I said, I'll kind of preface what I'm going to say with I come at the practice of law with an entrepreneurial background and I come at it more of a business than kind of pushing paper, if you will, which a lot of people view, attorneys as, kind of boring and not really in tune with the startup world, the venture world, the entrepreneurial mindset, the visions, the dreams. So I try to bring that all to the table. In so doing, you you run into the other side of the coin, which is a lot of founders, people with dreams and vision and huge hearts and great passion, but they have no sense, if you will, or long-range perspective as to what they might run into from a practical and legal standpoint. So I get all the time, and I may not be specific enough with the story, but I get all the time family members, for example, or best friends who want to go into business, and you have to advise them as to the pitfalls down the road, the nightmares that can happen, the friendships that fall apart, when business gets involved, when things go sideways, and you have to sometimes persuade them to structure their documentation a different way or protect themselves in a certain manner that they don't want to. I have a a co-founder story where the guy has a huge heart and his company is built around his passion for helping others. But in so doing, he is unwilling to treat his fellow senior members the way he's willing to treat himself in terms of dilution, in terms of voting rights et cetera, so you have to really kind of put those emotions to the side sometimes. And that can be difficult because oftentimes these types of ventures in the entrepreneur startup space are very passion driven. They're passion
0: projects. So Jordan, let me just ask, just of what I heard there, I see a lot with entrepreneurs, right? They don't have a proper operating agreement with their partners in the business. They don't have a buy sell agreement in terms of what happens to this whole business if something shoes to drop somewhere. They don't have proper estate planning if something has to happen to them and their family members get involved, like all those kinds of things. But I don't think you've given me a good story yet. Give me a story, if uh-huh. you can, of John Doe, doesn't matter who, okay. and how this particular hits home. Because I think people, the amount of entrepreneurs I talk to, they're like, oh, yeah, I haven't gotten around to that buy sell agreement yet. Or, yeah, I haven't gotten around. Partly is because they haven't been gapped enough. Hey, if you don't do, this is what can happen to you. Can you give me an example of that general story that you, maybe you've experienced in your lifetime that kind of you know, an entrepreneur should be freaked out by? And hey, I need to get this stuff tidied up. I've had a
2: founder who built the business, did everything right for his friends and partners, and was ultimately kicked out of his own business. Because from the outset, this particular founder gave everybody equal rights, essentially. Yep. The, the the operating agreement and the shareholder agreement. So behind closed doors, the other members got together and un- ousted him from a company that he had founded. That's mm-hmm. a short horror story, but I've seen
1: that more than once. So. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the primary reason to get an attorney is risk mitigation. Is that correct? That's a very important element of. Is yeah. there another element? as important or are other reasons secondary? When we think about an entrepreneur engaging an attorney, it's about Mm -hmm. risk mitigation first and other things second, or is that one of many things in the A tier? I think that's
2: one of many things, and a lot of these things do go hand in hand. For example, the way you structure your company at the onset with the documentation goes to managing that risk down the road and mitigating that risk, all the way from founder foundational documents to employment agreements, to non-disclosures, to non-competes, all of these go to the more broad term or phrase of risk mitigation.
1: So what is it that you do? It may sound like I'm putting you on the spot. I'm not intending to. I want to understand. When I said it's risk mitigation, you said that's one of many things. Name something you work with an entrepreneur on that at the end of the day is not about protecting them, i.e. risk mitigation. Uh, I'm having a hard time thinking of what falls in that category. A large
2: percentage of it is about protecting, but it's also about growth. It's also about personnel as opposed to how do I protect my brand. So I use the terms risk and protect somewhat different and not always interchangeable. And I do a lot of brand protection from the intellectual property standpoint, which a lot of startup founders are not aware of how important that is to protect the brand that you built, the naming that you built, the logo that you have, and that's trademarks, um, domain names, that those sorts of protections.
1: Risk mitigation and asset protection, if you will. That's a good way to put it. About I'm an entrepreneur. I don't have an attorney. Um, Why would I want to listen to this guy?
2: My short answer to that is because I've quote-unquote been there, co-founding or assisting or advising on startup companies and ventures and passion-driven operations. I feel as though I bring that perspective and I can have those conversations on a person-to-person level, as opposed to, I'm your attorney, and I'm going to speak legalese to
1: you. Instead, I can give you a little bit of real-world perspective. Makes sense. So you've been there. You're an entrepreneur, former entrepreneur, current entrepreneur yourself. You look at things from an entrepreneurial angle as much as you do from a theoretical risk mitigation, asset protection, something you learn, something that you can sell. You're really looking at it as an entrepreneur yourself first, and then really what can you serve them with secondarily? So as an entrepreneur, if I'm thinking risk mitigation and asset protection, what would be the top three things that I should absolutely consider setting up that they're just cookie cutter? Everybody needs these three things. What are those things? Okay, again, it depends on the long-term vision
2: for the company, but let's say short-term. Your choice of entity is critical. You form an LLC, limited liability company. Do you form a C corporation? In what jurisdiction do you form? Then you want to have your operating agreement or your bylaws drafted, and those will essentially govern the day-to-day of the company. Who's going to be responsible for what? Who's going to have votes? How many members on our board? Who's going to be on our board? How will that operate? All the decisions at the outset so that you don't run into these pitfalls down the road. These are things that are often overlooked. So, Rich, correct me if I'm
0: wrong. Here's what I got. On the risk mitigation side, I got choice of entity and where. Second one, I got operating agreement. What was the third one?
2: Choice of entity was big and then operating
0: bylaws. Okay. Are there two to three items that every business should have in place as it relates to business asset protection
2: the property ip without a doubt and that there's more than two to three probably under the ip umbrella the ip as trademark rights patents. i view it a little bit more broadly trade secrets quote-unquote know-how domain names brand names art Many iconic businesses that we're all familiar with are iconic in at least some part because we all recognize that logo, recognize that brand, we recognize the trade name. We've talked about what those
0: items are, but how do you actually protect them? How do I protect trade secrets, as an example, or the whole trademark copyright process? That seems to be cumbersome for entrepreneurs, especially startup entrepreneurs. What is the right thing for a business to do at different stages of their lives as it relates to their IP? It depends
2: on what you're trying to protect. Again, a lot of this can be done by agreement in terms of trade secrets and more things that are more on the confidentiality, non-disclosure side. But a trademark, for example, you can formally file to register your trademark. You do a search, then and, and you file it. For a domain name, there are certain, in terms of what's known as cyber squatting, there are certain things that need to be demonstrated. If somebody else is sitting on your name, not using it for commercially reasonable reasons, you can pursue that as a
0: claim. I have a few questions. So if you have a trade secret, KFC recipe, Coke's recipe, is the way to protect the trade secret generally through a confidentiality agreement with your employees and that's it? Or is there other ways to protect that? That is the best
2: way to do it is internally.
0: Rich, have you ever heard the term cyber squatting? No. (laughs) I never heard that as well. So you're telling me I start a company and I wrongfully don't look for the domain name before I set my name, and I now go look for the domain name. It's like, ah, someone else has joesdonuts.com. But they're not using it. They're just sitting on it. Is that what cyber squatting is?
2: And you're probably familiar with It's kind of a cottage industry because Joe's Donuts wants you to call them and negotiate an amount of money whereby you can purchase the domain, which is when they, if you push it, they have to prove certain things like they are using it and they're using it to make a profit, make money in a commercial manner. Cyber squatting are the people that will go out and purchase a number of different domains with no real intention of ever using them, but hoping that the phone rings or they send out emails offering for you to buy it from them. So that's a little industry in and of itself.
0: Interesting. Hmm. So I knew that was an industry. What I didn't know Was that if somebody has a domain that you want to use commercially, that they are not using commercially, that beyond me buying it for a million dollars, that there is a legal process that I could execute to get that domain. Can you explain to me what that is exactly? There are
2: four or five elements, things like demonstrating that they are not using it for commercial purposes, that they haven't used it in a certain amount of time that the only reason they have the domain is to
1: sell it. Uh, uh, John, I want to take things at slightly different angle, but I'm going to make you the centerpiece. How many companies do you have any percentage of? Ten. Jordan, what should John make absolutely sure is in place in these companies where he has an interest in? The short answer
2: is the shareholder agreement, whether it allows for him to acquire more shares down the road, what voting rights he has in the company, what operational say
1: he has in the company. Okay, anything else he should be thinking of? Because if he's got 10 now, I'm sure he's looking at an 11. So on the 11th one where he's looking at, what are some of the filters that you would recommend he use, like literally checkbox item. Where you can say to him, hey, John, make sure A, B, C, D are in place. If they are, in terms of risk mitigation and asset protection, you're approved by me. What would that vetting list be that John should be using? There's always a, sort of a due diligence
2: process in any of these potential investments that an individual like John would make, but they don't necessarily always go in shareholder agreement. You, of course, want to know about the health of the company. You might request financials. You want to know about management structure, any kind of agreements that they might have in place so that somebody that you like on the management team isn't gone. Six months later, the board, the structure of the board, current members, whether John has a right to join the board or a demand to be on the board and how that works. Those are some of the basics from the outset. What happens in the event of dissolution? or transfer or sale of the company, happens to John's investment. Will he have an opportunity to acquire more of the company? If the company is something that he is interested in and they're doing well, et cetera.
0: Jordan, Rich said something that piqued my interest. Is there such a thing like a, a pilot checklist that a company can use to assess, do I have all these things in place and can mm-hmm. evaluate internally to be like, you know what, we probably need to hire someone like Jordan because we're missing five of these things. We should get these things in place. Does that checklist exist? It does exist.
2: Oftentimes, especially in your early stage companies, the client doesn't know what it is that they need. And sometimes they don't even know what they do have on hand. So we simply request a data dump and we will take the time to review.
0: Yeah. Like an assessment, a legal assessment. That sounds pretty scary to me to think that An entrepreneur may not know what they have.
2: Oh, many don't because they're so busy focused on getting to that next level, the lifeblood, if you will, of an early stage company that they overlook these things, which kind of goes back to the beginning of our conversation. Then the structural documentation, the nuts and bolts that will alleviate some of the pain down
1: the road if you do it right early. When do you prefer to work with a company? Would you prefer to work with them in the forming stage? Or do you find in the forming stage they haven't actually they don't have enough assets to protect they haven't actually realized any risks or pain points that they'd be motivated to even do some of the things they should or do you, or do you go boy absolutely in the forming stage so we could set things up initially I can see it going either way where at what point in the stage and life cycle of a company do you prefer to pick up a client? Personally,
2: I will say in the early stage, like you said, where you want to do it right at the outset, I I love to see passion, the vision, have those early stage conversations. Where do you want to go? What do you want to see happen here? How are you going about it? And then kind of tailor our work to those conversations, which is not to say we don't enjoy working with and certainly take on businesses. We do that all day, every day either we or perhaps previous council has oftentimes already put a lot of the the core structure in place, the core documents. Um, I personally kind of like to make sure that they get off to the, the right start and watch their success, really,
1: and their growth and be a part of that along the way. Yeah, it makes sense. What I heard is really the sooner the better. As soon as you even consider it, Bring somebody in or somebody like you in, bring ASAP. What would be a piece of advice that is a golden nugget from Jordan that you typically reserve for really good paying customers that you could offer our audience as a sample of the type of advice that they can expect if they were to use you? A
2: golden nugget. Choose your partner's wisely. And when I say partners, I mean just because someone is in your family or has been your best friend for a long time does not always mean that you want to go into business with them. So the, the very simple black and white piece of advice that can save you a lot of headache down the road is very careful, diligent. I won't say emotionless, very black and white about choosing your business partners wisely from the onset.
1: What are the characteristics of a business partner who I would want to choose? Someone who is, again, you, it's great if you do
2: know these people already, there's certain personality traits, so to speak, for example, are they willing to negotiate? Are they willing to sacrifice personally for the growth of the company? Where are their priorities? Are their priorities to get rich quickly, or are they willing to kind of Take the bumps and bruises with you along the way, and perhaps make some of the sacrifices that that early stage companies need to make, especially the founders. Will are they are they leaders? Will they lead by example when you start to hire people? Are they going to be present? Are they going to embody any kind of company spirits that that or that you've talked about having the company embody?
0: I find the, the one of be, being willing to negotiate is an interesting one because I definitely can go back in history and realize that some of the partners that I had in the past that weren't willing to negotiate, when the going got tough, that was not a fun place to be exactly. versus people that are more amendable to, okay, let's be fair here and figure out how to move on, right? Let's be fair here
2: and figure out how to move on or let's be fair here and have a conversation for the good of the company run into situations regularly where one co-founder or, or I won't say majority, but a large shareholder won't, uh, the same sacrifice that the other larger shareholders are willing to
1: take. Gosh, I know we're in a bit of a rabbit hole and I love it. And I'm going to dig a little deeper in the rabbit hole. And this may not even be your lane and that's okay. But This decision for the good of the company, making decisions that way, boy, at the top of a company, I almost feel like, yeah, you better be making decisions that are in the best interest of the company versus your own best interest. Or if you're the salesperson and your partner is the production person, if you will, that you're not just making decisions for your lane, you're making decisions for the good of the company. Totally buy into that. I love it. How am I going to know that somebody's going to do that before I find myself in a position that I find them not doing that? Is this like behavioral based interviewing? So now I need to interview my uncle about hey, can you give me some examples in the past of where, like, how do I know that particularly a family member Mm -hmm. is going to make decisions for the good of a company that doesn't really exist yet?
2: You document it, is how you know. So that it doesn't come down to just uh, what this person tells you in an interview or where they've worked in the past or what they told you at dinner the other night, it's documented. This is your role. these are your duties, even though this is your friend and you know they're a great salesperson, all of a sudden they want to be something totally different down the road, and it's not good for the company or anybody else. You point back to those documents. This is you have those shares because you agreed. To do the following
1: not because now you want to be the chairman gosh that's excellent because it did seem awkward i think it's really sound advice which is have the conversation but just because it's a friend or family member it doesn't end on a handshake and a nod and let's have a cocktail this is business yes you're in business with friends or family but this is still business People forget things. People distort things intentionally or unintentionally. We all have memories that can fail us. Document the roles and responsibilities of each owner and then come back and do what you really should be doing with any employee is have an annual review or an audit of some sort of, hey, how'd you do against your responsibilities? And people are then accountable to what it is that was documented. That My mind just went straight there of what I just said. I'm like, oh, that is so good because it's so future-based that we don't have to look at the past unless it's there. We can look at the past and find out if they've always made selfish decisions their whole life long. But yeah, that's excellent. What's a final well, piece of advice you'd throw to all of our entrepreneurs before we close up for today?
2: A final piece of advice, oh, follow your heart. I'm all for that and the passion behind it and following your interests. But I strongly suggest, and not because of where I'm coming from, seek counsel and get your formational documents in order before you do anything else. And it will make every conversation you have going forward that much easier. So it's not just roles and responsibilities of people who working the day to day, but as you go out there as a startup, with your startup flag flying, so to speak. There are many different things you wanna get done, one of which is raising funds. They wanna see organized professional documentation as well.
0: Thank you, Jordan. Thanks, Jordan. Thank you. Thank you, John. Please stick around for a few more minutes while Rich and I break down this episode.
1: John, I hope I didn't overstep. You said you had about Ten companies or so. First of all, live on air. Did I overstep? Was that okay to ask?
0: No, it was completely inappropriate, but (laughs) I'm used to it by now, Rich. We're 130 (laughs) episodes deep. I love it. Would you say that the
1: list that he gave of between the health of the business, the financial, the management team, the board, like he gave, I don't know if it was an all-inclusive list, but I mean, it was like a dozen things he threw out there. Was there anything in that was an aha moment for you or was that simply validating the process you're already using?
0: I think it's validating, but I think what's an aha moment continuously as I speak with attorneys is how the formation of your company and the finances of your company are often second or third thoughts to entrepreneurs over growth and sales. And it's akin to the saying, penny wise, dollar foolish. I want to go get that next sale because I need that next sale. But then money's leaking out the back door because you don't have proper control of your finances or money's leaking out the back door because the partner that you gave 20% to when you started the business because you like the person now wants to leave and you got to buy them out and that wasn't properly structured in your agreement. If you are serious about being an entrepreneur, you need to go through this assessment legally to make sure you're protected in every single which way possible. And I look at it similar to a leaky boat. If you have a boat, when you first start your business, if you have none of this in place, your boat has a hundred holes in it. You got to plug all of those holes one by one. Ideally, you start with a boat that has no holes in it because you're so perfect at setting everything up. That typically doesn't happen because your business will bob and weave and move, but you got to reassess, reassess. Oh, there's a hole over here. Let's plug that. Oh, you know what? Our employment agreements don't have this in it. Let's make sure we had that in it. And unfortunately, that becomes a lot more red tape in your business, but you need to protect because the larger your business grows, Rich, the more exposed you will be to vultures wanting to come after you for different reasons.
1: And unfortunately, some of those vultures you find out are already in the nest and it's a little bit too late. And what we learned from Jordan is this list of ways to make sure those vultures are not in the nest. And I'm going to recite the things that he shared because I think they're brilliant, not just for how to select the partner but these sound like things that we would want in any employee, in any company. Wouldn't we want any person who we work with to be willing to negotiate, which is really about willingness to compromise and Fairness. seek a win-win? Wouldn't we want that with anybody? How about taking on personal sacrifice, at least for a period of time, maybe not indefinitely, maybe not to the point of full exhaustion or damage to family relationships, but Make personal sacrifice for growth and the good of the company. We'd want that with anybody. Are your priorities in the right place? Are you even clear on your own priorities? Do you lead by example? Are you honest, almost honest to a fault? Are you honest? And then the other one is make decisions for the good of a company. What a terrific punch list. I feel like those are things we could almost turn around and include in an interview process for anybody we want to work with. We'd want to work with vendors who are also clear on those things, let alone partners.
0: Yeah, and the one part that I heard as well that wasn't part of your list was you want your partner or partners to want to be part of the company culture. And it sounds weird. Why would they want to be a partner if they want to be part of the culture? But we know that in order to have a strong company, you need to have a strong company culture. And a lot of entrepreneurs and a lot of partners that I've met in the past they want to go sell, but they don't want to go to the company retreat. They don't want to go network with anybody. They don't want to wear the t-shirt or the pin or say the raw Ross chant or whatever it may be. They just want no part of it. They want no part of the company culture. That's a hard partner to have. And so I, I caught that when he said it. And I thought that was pretty pretty alarming for me to go. Oh yeah, that's a good one.